What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. We have spent the last hundred days plus covering the siege on Gaza by Israel, along with the global movement to end it and push forward a liberated Palestine. On today's show, we're going to be in conversation with a Bay Area freedom fighter exploring political angles not widely enough discussed. Our guest today is Yafa A.S., the executive director of the Muslim Alliance for Sexual and Gender Diversity. Yafa is also a trans-Muslim and displaced indigenous Palestinian. Hello, Yafa, and thank you for joining us. Hi, thank you so much for having me on here. Yafa, I want to start with a little bit about you. How and where did you grow up? Yeah, so that's really the hard question, <laughs> um, which I think for a lot of Palestinians, we a lot of Palestinians relate to that. Where you know people will ask, "Where are you from?" and then they'll be like, "But where where were you born? And then where did you grow up?" And I'm like, "Those are all different countries." <laughs> um, and so I uh, I was born in Jordan. Um, my grandparents had been displaced. Uh, in 1948 from Yaffa to Nablus, which is now in the West Bank. Uh, And then they were displaced again in 1967 to Kuwait. And then after the Gulf War, my parents were displaced to Jordan, and that's where I was born. And then at the age of six, then we moved to Arizona. Uh, And so that's technically sort of where I grew up. That's where I did elementary school. but depending on how you define grow up, I also was in Canada for middle school and then back in Jordan for high school. And then there's like five more countries after that. There's, that's what I wanted you to unpack a bit because you mentioned it briefly uh, the last time I chatted with you. I'm interested in how all of that, uh, including the understanding that we carry the trauma of our elders in our DNA, how did that impact you identifying or your identity as a displaced Palestinian? Yeah. Uh, in a lot of various ways. And I will say a lot of them have been coming up in the last 108 or so days uh, since all, since this began on October 7th um, and definitely way, way before that, uh, but definitely more cognizant of it these last few months. Uh, where, you know, I grew up without access to any of my elders. Um, I didn't really know any of my grandparents until I was a teenager in high school. Uh, My grandparents had moved uh, to Jordan at that time, uh, right before we had moved there. And so, you know, I was getting to know extended family members for the first time uh, when I was 14 and 15. And, you know, then to better understand how, you know, I've understood my own displacement and the displacement of my immediate family. Uh, And just so folks understand like the level that we're talking about, uh, between me, my sisters and my parents were born in five countries. Uh, And so, you know, this isn't just one or two countries. It's literally within just my immediate family. We have five countries between us. And so to, to go to Jordan and Uh, And then hear the stories about all the family members who stayed behind and then all the family members who are now all over the world, right? So in South Africa and in Germany and in the UK and in the US and uh, literally just everywhere, right? And so to notice all of the pieces of that that family tree that I'd never known. Uh, And so it was wonderful in high school to get to know my my grandparents from my dad's side, my grandparents from my mom's side had passed by then. Um, 
but just to to get to know them and almost breathe in Palestine uh, in a way that was never really accessible to me beforehand. Uh, and so I was definitely very grateful for that. And it was really through them that I learned more about the family, about life in Palestine pre-1948, because uh, both of my grandparents were born in 1932. Uh, and so they still remembered it, right? They had stories of the violence that had happened in the 30s and early 40s, pre-1948, uh, which I feel like was really critical for me not just understanding um, myself, but also really understanding the context of Palestine and the violence that had been ongoing starting around like 1917 onwards, even though to this day in many, uh, you know, mainstream uh, discourse about Palestine, we talk about 1948 onwards. Uh, But having access to that knowledge of the decades prior to that, uh, I think was really important. And I got that from my dad's side. And I will say I didn't get that from my mom's side, again, because my grandparents had passed by then. And uh, it's really just been the last three months and a half that I finally got more of my mom's side, where uh, I didn't really know much of uh, my mom's, you know, grandfather's history, right? Or her uncles and her aunts. And it was really through everything that's been happening in Gaza. And especially when, when they released the names of all the people who had been killed a few weeks into this, because Joe Biden was like, oh, none of this is real. It was actually, I went through those names. It was, it was actually around the same time as my mom's birthday. And so it was all hitting all at the same time. But going through that list and discovering that actually my mom's family, it, and I always thought that my dad had family in Gaza, where two of his uncles uh, ended up in, in Gaza. And so their families, and so I knew a little bit about them, uh, but knew nothing about my mom's side of the family. And so to go through that list and just in that single list of just the children had more than 80 family members from her side. And so then going and having a conversation with her and being like, hey, like, do we have family from your side in Gaza? And she went into the story of how, you know, her mom ended up going to Kuwait with with, with her father. Um, but the rest of the family, like her grandparents ended up staying in the West Bank, but her aunts and uncles ended up going to Gaza. Right. And she knew stories and she was connected to them in different ways. But it was so interesting of it, it, it's such a weird way of finding second cousins. And then my mom was the one to ask me of like, oh, did something happen to them? Because um, she hadn't seen the lists. And it, uh... I always assumed that it would be my parents telling me that we lost family versus me telling her that again, of just like 80 children. So not even the adults. Um, And so it was, it it was interesting, but it really showed me also of how, you know, without the elders, those stories aren't shared in the same way. Um, And, you know, we feel so disconnected in those ways. And I remember when my grandfather died, the, my dad's dad, who is originally from Sudan, his dad came from Sudan. And so um, it, it, it felt as if we lost Palestine when he died, uh, even though I still have a grandmother alive and she's wonderful and we love her and still very connected to Palestine. But he was the one that told us the stories, right? He was the one that grew the olive trees in Jordan. And it was so important for him to live with the land when when he finally was able to retire. Uh, and he really teaching us the values of what it was 
to be Palestinian, what it is to be Palestinian before colonization, settler colonization really took root. Uh, and yeah, and so I, I feel like it's so important to have those conversations with the elders. And I will say of one of the things that has been happening the last hundred plus days is that I feel like more families are having some of those conversations. And I remember like two weeks into this, uh, one of my younger sisters who was born in the U.S., who has never really asked about Palestine, has never really had much of an interest. She's 23. Uh, you know, she messaged me randomly and was like, hey, do you have time to talk about the family history in Palestine? And that was just so beautiful and so powerful of that even though, you know, they're they're killing tens of thousands of us. And we know that number is just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger of like Palestine will still live on because of the stories that we're sharing. And more people are hearing those stories now. At the time of this recording, uh, the Ministry of Health in Palestine over the weekend announced that Israel's assault on Gaza has resulted in 25,000 deaths. We know that 12,000 of those are children. You just said that 80 of those children are members of your family. We also know that this is uh, likely a massive undercount. What is the emotional impact? How do these numbers impact you? Um, and not just in, uh, your your emotion, but when you think about organizing or resistance in the face of such massive devastation. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's always interesting to balance both the the immense loss that's been happening within my family, and also the loss of just the other people that I knew and I've worked with, and everybody else. And I think often people assume that because we have family there, that's why we care. That's why we show up. And I think my example is is a really great one where. I didn't even really know that was the extent of the family that I had until almost a month into all of this. And there's, there's such profound grief that exists within that of, you know, when your people are, are being killed at this massive level, right? In a way where not a single one of us can really prevent it, right? Or do anything about it in this moment in time. Uh, we just, we don't know what's going to make it stop, right? We, I personally fully believe that a free Palestine is going to happen. I just don't know when it will happen and what exactly will make it happen. And But we just show up, right? And we do all the things that we can do. But there is such deep, profound sorrow in mourning people that you'll never know their names and their stories and their backstories and everything that they are, both family and non-family members. Um, and so even in, in my poetry collection, there's and the poetry collection was written right before uh, those lists were released, right? And so talking about mourning people whose names you don't know, who might not know your name, who if you looked at a picture they look exactly like you, and all those layers of loss, right? Of it's not just that people are being killed right now; it's that this has been ongoing for over a hundred years. And it split families in such profound ways. And I always tell people, of like, I have distant family in Gaza. It's not that they're distant in terms of relation, but distant in the sense of 
for my family in particular as non-US citizens, right, as having been refugees in different places and having been immigrants in all of these other places, we've never been permitted to go into Palestine, whether in Gaza, the West Bank, or occupied Palestine, uh, which is known as like 1948 Palestine. We've never been permitted to go. And then especially the Gaza family members, they're not permitted to leave, right? And so how do you maintain those relationships with people when there's there's literally no way to see one another, right? And watching how so many families have, instead of maintaining that connection, have almost like turned away a little bit because I feel like it's so hard right? To be in that relationship, knowing that it will be decades before you potentially connect. And basically the whole world has to transform for it to happen. There's so much sorrow and grief that exists within all of that. Uh, and I think in particular with Gaza, like we see that more than any other place. And often people will ask me of like, oh, well, what about like WhatsApp and Facebook Messenger? And I'm like, I mean, I'm 31, right? But I remember phone cards, <laughs> I I remember being in the U.S. and we would talk to my grandparents maybe twice a year because it was really expensive and we were in severe poverty and it was a lot of money. And even in terms of like WhatsApp calls, like I don't remember that becoming an actual thing until I was in college, right? Like it wouldn't let you talk for more than a few minutes until like 2012, right? Before that, it wasn't reliable. And I think people have forgotten that, of that it's actually been just the last 10 years that people can be connected across the world with ease in those ways. Um, but this is like, they, the, my dad's side of the family who ended up in Gaza got to Gaza in 1948. My mom's side of the family who ended up in Gaza was more, more in like the 50s and 60s. But that's 50, 60 years ago potentially up to 75 years ago. That's four generations of people. That's how much time had passed without us being able to actually be in actual contact. And so for those 75 years, what usually happened is the elders in the family were connected to the elders in their families. And so my grandfather would give us updates about his siblings' kids who were in Gaza. Right. And so we knew about the people and there was one time where one of the second cousins was able to come and visit him. And so I met that person there. Uh, but but that was it. Right. And when he died again, it felt like that connection was lost because then that connection became his younger brother, the last remaining grand uncle, uh, great uncle. And and so it's we're just distant, but we're distant because we have to be because of how displacement has worked because of how settler colonialism has separated us and made it impossible for us to, to come together as families. You are listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks, in conversation with Yafa A.S., the executive director of the Muslim Alliance for Sexual and Gender Diversity. Yafa is also a trans Muslim and displaced indigenous Palestinian. All right, Yafa, I had you on uh, a little while ago to explore the concepts of pink and purple washing, but I wanted to bring you back and I wanted to go a little deeper, but we still got to like roll it back to the beginning. Um, This time I'm going to start with purple washing because the way that we had the conversation last time, it seemed like this history leads into pink washing, but you'll correct me because you're the expert. 
Um, how would you define purple washing and what is its history inside of the context of organizing for Palestinian liberation? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm definitely one of those like history nerds in a way. And it's I, amazing. So, like, I love history. It's amazing. I'm, I'm like, everything is connected. Like, let's talk about all of it. Um, so with, with purple washing, it's really the, the use of like women's safety or saving women uh, in really patriarchal heteronormative ways, saving women uh, specifically to expand the colonization project. And I say it in those ways because I find that oftentimes with purple washing, we actually forget that purple washing was a staple to the colonial project from the very, very beginning. So 500, 600 years ago, uh, white Europeans specifically used women quote unquote, as a, as an excuse to go and colonize different spaces around the world and specifically, and in very contradictory ways, right? So in some spaces, it was like, we have to civilize women by making them more modest. And then in other spaces, it was the exact opposite. It was, we have to save women because they're being oppressed by being too modest and they must be liberated. And so I always stress that this has always been part of the foundation of the colonial project. This predates the suffragette movement. This predates what's known as feminism as we know it today. This predates all of that. It was always used specifically by white cis straight European men, right, to expand the colonial project. But it was always there. Uh, And so over the years, over the last few hundred years, you know, we've seen that play out in, in a multitude of different ways. Uh, and then we saw a huge shift over the last 25 or so years. And that's usually what's referred to uh, more as purple washing uh, of, in particular, of places like the United States using the concept of purple washing to go and invade like Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, and so if you think of uh, people like Barbara Bush going on uh, you know, television talking about how the like women in Afghanistan are so oppressed and they must be liberated. And so we have to go to war. And same with Iraq, it was the same language. And so we saw world leaders, not just from the US, but in Canada, in the UK, all of these different places using the exact same language to justify uh, going to war with those places, uh, which we know is false, right? We know that all we've, all these countries have ever done is harm those spaces and in particular um, have harmed women and children uh, drastically and more so than, than any other group um, before. And so with the history of that and where it starts moving towards like pinkwashing is, so in the year 2000, uh, the UN issued their Women, Peace and Security Agenda. And this isn't saying that that agenda was bad. This is just saying that you could have the best policies, but within a settler colonial and colonial system, it's always going to be used for evil, for lack of a better word. Uh, and so basically that became the, the foundation right, for that language, for the use of purple washing, again, to invade places like Afghanistan, like Iraq. Um, We've seen it in Libya, we've seen it for Syria, we've seen it in a lot of different places. Uh, Basically, every conflict over the last 24 years, uh, purple washing has played a role in it. Where Wherever it is, whatever war it is, purple washing has always played some kind of role. 
And what happened on an international scale in towards the 2010s is uh, specifically as the war in Sri Lanka was happening, basically there was discourse to change the role of women from exclusively victims into like, wait, maybe women could be complex and maybe they can be perpetrators. Um, it's interesting that this is the early 2000s, right? Some of this just sounds really comical <laughs> um, to like say it out loud, but this is like between the 2000s and the 2010s. Um, and so slowly internationally, they were starting to introduce this concept that women can also be perpetrators within conflicts instead of just um, always women are the victims and they need saving from everybody else, specifically from black and brown men. Um, and so that that started happening and we see it happening within the U.S. in particular through the Obama administration. The Obama administration had two different um, women, peace and security uh national plans, uh, the first in the first term of the presidency, and then the update was in the second term. And in the first one, it had women as the victims, basically, uh, very similar to the women, peace and security agenda. Uh, and it was basically framing the world in ways of, again, we have to go and save women. In the second edition of that, in the second term of the presidency, that is where they introduced the concept that women can be perpetrators. And it happened in very specific ways where uh, uh, where it happened under a section called countering violent extremism. For those uh, listeners who might not be familiar with countering violent extremism, it's a uh, specifically a youth Muslim surveillance program that specifically targets mostly black and low income Muslims, Muslim communities that was imported from England and it, it's it's an incredibly problematic pro program. It's a it's an anti-terrorism surveillance program, specifically in line with the thinking of that all Muslims must be terrorists and so they must be surveilled. And again, I want to really honor of that it does impact predominantly Black Muslim communities uh, across across what's known as the as the U.S. And that was a there was a huge push around those years to really center that program through the Obama administration. In that section, which is a heavily coded Muslim section, is where they present that women could also be perpetrators. And in that same section is the first time that you see it in policy that the LGBTQ community are in need of saving. And it created everything that was needed. And, and the concept of pinkwashing was already there. It was already being used. But within the context of the U.S. within policy, this was one of the very first times where it was centered. And... Within that framing, it basically said that Muslim women, black and brown women in particular, can also be perpetrators and they are not only victims. And also they could be perpetrators against the LGBTQ community. And so creating the, the, the foundation of now we must invade countries to save the LGBTQ community, not just from black and brown cis men, but from women as well. And in Trump's first, uh, well, not first, but one of the initial campaign speeches that Trump uh, had uh, in Arizona. And people have talked about that speech quite a bit for other reasons, because all of his speeches are a lot. Uh, and so there was a lot to discuss. But one thing that he mentions that's rarely ever acknowledged or brought up is that he specifically says that we need to go and invade countries to save the LGBTQ community. And this is from Trump, right? One of the most homophobic and transphobic lawmakers that we've seen in a really long time. 
but use the same words um, specifically to justify, again, invading countries. Uh, in a global scale, when it comes to the Zionist state of Israel, uh, they had been already doing a marketing campaign to brand themselves as a queer utopia and specifically to make the case that um, that basically their their occupation is justified because they are bringing so many rights to the play, to the space. And so they'll prop up that they're the only democracy in the Middle East and they will prop up that Tel Aviv, for example, is a queer and trans haven. Uh, without acknowledging that actually, one, uh, the Zionist state of Israel does not have uh, marriage equality in any way, shape, or form. Um, and two, none of those rights extend outside of predominantly white Jewish populations, right, due to how it's set up, due to the apartheid that exists within uh, 1948 Palestine. Uh, and and they had been doing it for, since the early 2000s. Uh, and it was one of the major places that we saw pinkwashing really rising to the surface and really being weaponized against Palestinians to justify the occupation, to justify uh, the existence of the settler colonial state, uh, and to really just support that branding of that this is a democracy, this is a place where uh, human rights thrive, uh, quote unquote. Uh, and... And so the two play into one another. Uh, and it's just one of those things where, unfortunately, we've seen this time again and again, where systems of oppression will change the tools that they are using or the branding of the tools that they are using to maintain uh, their occupations and um, their oppressions and and so on and, and so forth. It's more or less the exact same system. Uh, you also have things like greenwashing and bluewashing and redwashing, and they're more or less the same thing. It's just different aspects of indigeneity that they weaponize against indigenous populations to uphold settler colonialism and the colonial project. And that goes all the way back to the very beginning. None of it is new. All right, Yafa, I've got two <laughs> reflection questions for you. Um, and then I want to move on to talking about... Um, your artivism, uh, your life as a poet, but but one reflection on on the harms of pink washing, and one reflection on the harms of purple washing. Although there are many, um, in terms of purple washing, can you reflect on the ways in which purple washing can ignore the violence of rape and other sexually based assaults as a weapon of war that are utilized by the IDF? And so, for example, Colonel. Ayel Quorum of the military rabbinate has declared publicly that it's permissible for Israeli soldiers to rape Palestinian women for the purposes of, quote, maintaining morale, end quote. Yeah, that's that's a great question. Similar with like all the washings, it's a form of dehumanizing the, the group of people, right, that are being oppressed. And so um, when we think of purple washing and how that's split, um, feminism in, in in different ways, right? Of you have a lot of white feminists uh, or individuals who, uh, you know, who buy into colonial feminism and imperialist feminism, uh, where to them, due to purple washing, it's almost like when you reduce a group of people to a group that you have to save, they're no longer human. And so that allows so much room and space for things like mass rape 
and sexual assault to be used against that population. And there's almost like this cognitive dissonance, right? Of, oh, we have to save Palestinian women specifically from Palestinian men. And what that does is it creates this framework where the only villains in the story can only ever be Palestinian men in this case, right? Or as we've seen in various places throughout Africa and throughout like South Asia and things like that, where specifically it's more black men, right? But we've created, there's this structure, right? Where this is the enemy, this is the, these are the victims and these are the people that we have to save. And so when another group of people that doesn't fit that narrative where it's no longer Palestinians, right? And it's predominantly white uh, Israeli IOF members, it's almost as if that never happened, right? Because there's no way that that can exist within that narrative. And so it causes a ton of harm because it leaves so much room for those violences to exist because they're so focused on harm that, because in their heads, the villains must be Palestinian men. And so if it's something that Palestinian men are not doing, it doesn't exist. And so then IOF members can basically do whatever they want. And for a lot of people, they just will not even consider it because it can't live within within that reality that they've created through purple washing. Uh, and again, we've seen that we've seen that throughout the world. And also I will say of specifically using sexual assault and rape as a weapon of war, of that is one of the very initial Zionist tools that they had used against Palestinians from the early 1920s. Right. And throughout the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s. And one of the reasons that I always mention that this did not start in 1948, like that can never be an accurate interpretation of it is because I think it makes it seem as if everyone just left their homes in 1948. You know, people woke up one day and they were like, all right, we're tired. We're going to go. What it eliminates is the 30 years of psychological warfare, the 30 years of entire family branches being being killed, the 30 years of using rape as a weapon, right? And there's stories of literally they would kidnap women, rape them, and then parade them around streets to get rid of this of, of the residents of that town, right? And that was happening throughout the 20s and the 30s and into the early 40s. Um, and so, you know, right now with Gaza, for example, we're a little over 100 days, right? And most of us can barely hold on, right? Most people can barely imagine what that could be like. And most of us can understand that desire to leave. We're talking about 30 years of that. Sure, not on that level with like blanket bombs and things like that, but 30 years of immense violence. Uh, and that's how 1948 happened. And that was very intentional. That was by design. Yeah, for this this wasn't a question I plan to ask, and it, and it may sound ignorant. Forgive me. I've heard um, folks talk about that there was this period of coexistence um, in response to Israel's assertions that Palestinians don't know how to coexist, mm-hmm. um, but it's never been the Palestinians that had that problem. D- did such a period exist? And if so, when was that relative to the history that you've been breaking down for us today? Yeah, absolutely. That 100% existed. And it existed for way longer than Zionist state even existed. So I have stories from my grandparents where they had Jewish neighbors growing up, 
right, pre-1948. And what had happened in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s up until 1948 is they did everything that they could to make it impossible for coexistence to, to, to happen. And it wasn't even like coexistence in the way that I think we understand it of, you know, different people coming together and there's differences and we're going to put those differences aside and come together. It was just, they, everyone was Palestinian. It was just, you're Palestinian. It didn't matter if you were a Christian Palestinian, a Jewish Palestinian, a Muslim Palestinian. And to this day, there is a pretty large or significant like group of, um, of Palestinian Jews, right, of individuals that identify as Palestinian and Jewish, and who I recently just met someone who whose grandfather was born in Palestine, and she was like, yeah, he was fighting the Zionists in the 30s. Um, and those are the stories that they don't want us to talk about, right, because it makes it seem as if Zionism is related to Judaism, right, and it's, it's always been a Judaism versus Islam uh, and Christianity thing. And it just, that's, that's just not been true literally for hundreds of years prior to the Zionist movement. Um, again, starting with like their terrorism campaign in the twenties, thirties and forties. Uh, and, and so that definitely existed, but again, not in a way where it was like, Oh, like you're Jewish. And so you're different than us and you're Christian. And so you're different than us and you're Muslim. And so you're different than us. And so we're going to be in our own little spaces and all of that. It was just, people are just Palestinian, um, right? And if you think of even just like Christian Palestinians of, you know, Palestine used to have 40% Christian Palestinians. Uh, and and those numbers have gone severe, have become severely lower since 1948. Um, but Palestine was just, it was, it was just a place where it, not only was it just Palestinians, but Palestine was the place that individuals went to after genocides happened in other places of the world and where they were always welcomed. And so thinking of like the Armenian community, uh, which my mom's mom's side of the family came in from that community, right? And they were welcomed and they were embraced and there was space for everyone. Or thinking of my dad's side of the family where his side came in from Sudan. Um, but it wasn't like, uh, oh, you're from Sudan, you're black, you, you can't be a part of this. It was just... It, it was a land where people thrived in so many different ways. Um, and that's a history that they've tried to erase as much as possible. But there are so many people who still hold on to those stories. You're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks, in conversation with Yafa A.S., the executive director of the Muslim Alliance for Sexual and Gender Diversity. Yafa is also a trans-Muslim and displaced indigenous Palestinian. I'm looking at the clock and I'm frustrated because I'm running out of time again um, with you and so much more to explore. But Yafa, I want to um, pivot now. In addition to being an organizer and an activist and I read an engineer, okay, um, you were also a poet. When did you start writing? Yeah, so I've always been writing. I've been writing novels in particular since I was 13. Uh, writing has always been my way of uh, being able to express things that the world around me did not always reflect. Uh, and so, you know, we talk about building community and community care and things like that. And you know, through, throughout my childhood and into young adulthood, 
uh, writing has always been my community care. It's always been my community. It's not the way that we think of community uh, because we think of community as other people around us. But writing has always been my way of just expressing everything I need, process the things that I need to without even knowing that I'm processing things. Uh, and poetry in general, I've been doing just literally just over the last couple of years. Um, and part of the, the pivot between writing novels and poetry is that for me, poetry is just really accessible. Um, and Audre Lorde has a beautiful quote that I'm probably going to butcher here, but she talks about how poetry is the poor man's um, form of writing because you could do it anywhere. You could do it on the bus. You could do it on a plane. You could do it um, having dinner with people and and so on and so forth. And so the last few the last couple of years, uh, poetry has kind of been my go-to to really just put things out there. Um, and yeah, and so, and I've used it specifically as a part of my organizing and activism uh, to really elevate the things that I'm doing and um, yeah, and just being able to, to, to keep going for myself, to be honest, selfishly. I looked it up while you were talking. Uh, she said, of all the art forms, poetry is the most economical. It is the one which is the most secret, which requires the least physical labor, the least material, and the one which can be done between shifts in the hospital, pantry, on the subway, and on scraps of surplus paper. Um, yeah, me too. Um, you have a new book out, Blood Orange. What is the title about? What does that mean? Yeah. So my, my dad's side of the family is from Yaffa. Um, and one of the very first things that the British and then the Zionist appropriated is our oranges. Yaffa oranges have always been known worldwide. Uh, and, you know, as potentially like the best oranges. And even to this day, if you go to the UK, uh, you'll find uh, what they call Jaffa cakes. Uh, they're not as known in the US, um, but they're basically just our oranges, uh, right? And they, they marketed them and created products from them. Uh, and so the oranges in particular is something that uh, to me, it just represents home and not even all of Palestine, but in particular Yaffa, where I'm from, uh, because like Palestine is known for our olives and for the fig and um, for for so many things, for pomegranate. Uh, but the the oranges in particular are very Yaffa specific. And so I really wanted uh, to really have a name that reflected home in that way. And then uh, the blood in particular is really honoring all of the violence that's that's been happening over the last hundred years and even prior to that um, right where you know we're, we're a land that that has witnessed so much blood and violence um, and so really wanted to honor both of those things at the same time with the title Yafa yeah, I'm wondering if you will uh, bless us with a piece or two yeah absolutely. All right, so this one is called On Our Way. Our bodies polarize, yet make the news. I am conscious that other bodies do not. A privilege is a privilege even when it starts and ends in genocide. Our bodies are powerful, yet lie underneath tons of concrete and rubble that smells of jasmine and sage, Glazed in orange and fig, 
drizzled in olive oil that described Allah in a lantern beyond. Our minds warp under the weight of injustice and spilled blood, gaslighting and erasure. The weight of indigenous genocide fastened to our belts released only when we are. Our people rise like wisps of rose water, breathing life into knafe and pistachio ice cream on streets inscribed in memories lost to time, fertilizing homes we will return to before time begins. We are the beginning and the end in a story, neither and yet both at the same time. We are Palestine, caused by any other name, and we still are what we are, Palestinian. Beautiful. Please one more. Yeah, we've got time. Yeah, yeah. And I'll, I, I've started just including these two together. Um, this next one's called Amel. There will come a day when the sun sets on a world and rises in another, where indigenous sovereignty is honored, where queerness no longer exists, where transness is no longer an identity, where humanity means something genuine. Yafa, if folks want to get a copy of your book or connect with you, how are you the most easily found? Yeah, so for copies of the book, uh, the book is sold uh, anywhere that books can be sold. And so any bookstore is able to order it. It's also available on Bookshop. Uh, it's, yeah, so it's a vi- it's readily available everywhere. Uh, and then in terms of following my work, uh, you can follow my personal uh, Instagram where I share most uh, links and, and things. Uh, and so it's just Yafa's Utopia, Y-A-F-F-A-S-U-T-O-P-I-A. Uh, and, or you can follow the organization, The Meshid, uh, the word the, and then M-A-S-G-D uh, on Instagram. Uh, and these days I've been inviting folks to also just sign up for the newsletter that we have as an organization due to shadow banning. Um, and so those would be the best ways uh, so folks can contact me any in any of those locations. Any last words you have for the folks listening uh, to this interview, uh, calls to action, um, words of comfort, words, what haven't I asked you that you feel like you would still like to say? I feel like there's always so much to say. Uh, <laughs> In particular, one thing that I've been really trying to uplift is community care. As we focus on the rest of the world, it's also so important to think of all the different marginalized populations that are severely impacted by all of this here. Uh, In particular, a lot of my work right now is with queer and trans Palestinians, both in the diaspora and on the ground in Palestine. And even though the situation is so dire in Palestine, Uh, It's so awful, everything that's happening in Gaza, even what's happening in Jerusalem and in the West Bank and in 1948. uh, We often overlook what's also happening in diaspora. And so right now, the amount of people that I am working with who have lost their jobs, who are being evicted, uh, in one case, uh, a school called Child Protective Services on on a parent um, because they're Palestinian. Uh, and the list goes on and on. And so really being mindful of that, of 
knowing your community, supporting your community, and in particular, who within your community doesn't have access to things like savings and who, if they get fired, it's going to be incredibly, incredibly uh, damaging to, to their, to their day-to-day life in whatever ways. And how do you build out more of those networks of community care so that we take care of one another? And in particular, I do want to uplift of, I definitely see this impacting artists in a lot of ways where for a lot of artists, you know, it's gig to gig and week to week. And with the last three and a half months, most artists have been asked to do fundraisers and different events for free without us recognizing of like, but that's someone's livelihood. And so it's so important to be able to send money to Gaza and to the West Bank and to Palestine in general and to to raise these funds. But to me, it's equally as important to make sure that we're taking care of our own because otherwise none of us will be left to do this work. I could not have said that better myself, uh, particularly around... Um, asking artists, particularly Black, Brown, Indigenous artists, to labor for free. So we will, I have to leave it there. You all have been listening to Law and Disorder. My name is Kat Brooks. Our guest today has been Yafa A.S., the Executive Director of the Muslim Alliance for Sexual and Gender Diversity. Yafa is also a trans-Muslim, displaced Indigenous Palestinian uh, poet, uh, author, and engineer. Yafa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.